This is the second week of this series we're calling Encounter. And uh, we're going to walk through Exodus 3 and part of Exodus 4, where I have just been preoccupied with this scripture for a, a couple years now, really. Uh, there's so much that happens in this crazy encounter with a guy named Moses at a, a bush in the desert where God shows up. And if you guys remember last week, I, I threw out this idea that Exodus 3 and 4 are, is kind of like a movie trailer. And the way that a trailer tells you something about the, the movie that you're here to see, Exodus 3 and 4 in my paradigm is just, it's serving as a trailer for this big story of God. And so if you look at these two chapters, and really it's not even all the two chapters, it's really like a chapter and a half, you will see so many things that emerge and are critical themes in the grand story of God. And so it tells us about who God is, tells us about who we are, and it tells us about what God is up to in the world. And so I also said that, you know, kind of the framework that I'm looking at this is basically asking some basic questions every week about God. And this is kind of the way I study the Bible sometimes. I ask myself, what does this text say about God? What does this text say about us? And what does it say about a relationship between us and God? And if you, if, if you just look at, at all the scripture that you read, if you ever study the Bible, if you ever just like, man, how do I get into this? If you come to the, the text with these three questions, you know, you're going to learn a lot. They're basic questions that almost anybody can ask and answer, and yet they'll illuminate an awful lot. Um, last week, I threw out the idea that uh, the first few verses of this, of this section of Scripture tell us essentially God is a calling God. He calls out to everyone, everywhere, all the time. And that is seen through the idea of like this, this is our bush, right? If you guys remember, like we talked about how in the ancient world, um, most gods in the ancient world showed up in, in trees and they were associated with trees because trees are big. They're places of power. And this God shows up in a shrub. And one of the ancient rabbis said that actually the whole reason he shows up in a shrub was to show that there's no place that's too lowly or too like unspecial for God to show up in. And our only job in this equation is to be open and curious because Moses is out there just doing his stuff and he sees the, the, the burning bush, the lights coming from in the bush. And the first thing he does is just respond out of curiosity. What is this thing that's happening? And that triggers this whole crazy chain of events that changes Moses' life and changes, I think, the life of, of the entire world, which we'll get to maybe not today, but in the coming weeks. So today what I want to do is, is really do just some straight, almost verse-by-verse verse teaching uh, out of this passage. So we're going to go literally like verse-by-verse verse, um, and talk about some of the stuff and some of the content that is here. As I've been trying to say, like there's so much in this chapter and a half that like I can't, I could teach uh, a series on sometimes on two sentences because of these little kernels of, of information that are contained. So we're not going to get to everything today, but these themes are going to keep coming up. So if you have your Bible and you want to open it up to Exodus, it's in like probably the first 60, 70 pages of the Bible, Exodus chapter three. We're just going to start in verse 
4, which is where we ended last week. So it starts this way. Uh, when the Lord saw that he, that's Moses, had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. God said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is a common response, this last phrase, being afraid to look at God in the Old Testament especially. Uh, there's just this natural sort of reverent, appropriate fear of seeing the eternal, the supernatural. And so Moses' first response is to hide his face. But that's not where his response ends, which is really, really fascinating. And we're going to take a look at that over the next couple of weeks. But we're also going uh, to take a look next week at the idea of when God says, look, the place where you're standing is holy ground. And what does it mean that God is holy? But, but today, we're actually going to talk about something different about who God is, getting another piece of his character. To do that, we need to acknowledge like what happens here. So again, who is Moses? Moses is this guy who was born a Hebrew. He's Jewish, right? But at this time in Egypt, Pharaoh is tried to annihilate the Hebrew people by killing all the Hebrew boys. Moses is saved. He grows up in, in Pharaoh's household. Uh, he, he murders an Egyptian. And at this point, he's a shepherd. And so there's this tension where, again, we think in our lives that God shows up to the holy people. God shows up and speaks to the spiritual superstars, right? If you've ever been like in a a church environment or been like a Bible, Bible camp, vacation Bible school, and you got like gold stars for scripture memorizations, like that, that puts you in the running to hear from God. But that's not who Moses is. He's just a dude. He's just a shepherd. And he's not even really supposed to be a shepherd. He's a shepherd because he murdered somebody. And he's just a dude going about his day. When all of a sudden, you know, what happens? He's just over here and all of a sudden he hears like, Moses. Moses. And he responds. But, uh, but, but don't go too far beyond what, what is said here. Again, he grows up in privilege and power as part of Pharaoh's household. That's what the text says. When God says, you know, don't come any closer. And then he says, I am the God of your father and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And so in this moment, Moses, the, the, the child of privilege, the child of power, the child uh, who grew up in an Egyptian household, he gets reminded of his other identity. Moses, I'm the God of whose father? Your father. Moses, you're not Egyptian. Moses, you're Jewish. Moses, you're part of the people of God. Moses, you have got another identity. Remember that, Moses? And I don't know if Moses has forgotten that he's Jewish at this point. I don't think he has because his whole motivation for killing the Egyptian was because the Egyptian was, being, uh, was, was beating another Jew. But God shows up and he says, look, I'm the God of your father. And so 
these two identities, Pharaoh's household and, and Hebrew, Jewish, are going to be critical to what happens in this text. Um, Moses hides his face. Then the text goes on. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. And man, that sentence right there, when I pause on that, it's rich. You know, first of all, um, just hold that slide there. I, I like the fact that God responds the same way he expects Moses to respond. If you guys remember, Moses sees the bush first, right? And God doesn't speak until Moses turns aside. And in the same way, God sees first and then he hears. Same way that he works with Moses is he works. He sees their misery. He hears their cries. And then this God who created the world, the universe says, and I am concerned. And right there, man, something changes in my spirit. When I think of this God who's really good at doing crazy supernatural things, powerful things, and yet he says, when people suffer, I don't just stay off in the distance. I don't just kind of just say, oh, that's really awful. Hope they work that out. He says, I am concerned, which is not just an action. It is what? A feeling. God feels. God feels. And he feels for suffering. He feels for suffering. And then this, I've, I've had this debate with my wife before that these next uh, five words are the most important five words of the Bible. So I have come down. So God feels suffering. But he doesn't do like a lot of us do. And we, we say, oh man, we watch the CNN report. We, get the, we watch our Twitter feed and we go, man, that's awful. And then we go, get back in line at, at Red Eye to get our coffee drink. God says, I am concerned and I move. I move. I have come down to rescue them. Man, that's powerful. God responds to human suffering by being concerned and moving. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, good food, especially for, for people who are former slaves. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, oh my. That's who lives in this land that he's promising them. So, like, let me just put it up on the screen one more time. This God sees and hears human suffering. No, no, no. Put the, the slide about the suffering in response. 
It's after this. Read that just for a second. God's response to human suffering is to move towards it. This has been so powerful in my life because I used to think that when I suffered, sometimes, and I talk to some of you guys in this community, and when we suffer, when, when life goes bad, if you're like me, one of your first responses is, what have I done wrong? Is God angry with me? What did I do to end up in this position that I'm in? And I, can't, I don't have all those answers. I can't pretend to know all the, the answers to those questions. There are consequences for decisions, uh, both good and bad. But here's what I do know, that when we suffer, God does not run away from us. He is not ashamed of us. He moves towards us. That to me has been so comforting to say, I don't know what's going on, God. I wish things weren't this way, but here's what I do know. You are with me and you are concerned about me. Verse nine. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, what does it say? That's not a rhetorical question. What does it say? Go. I am sending who? Oh, man. Darn it. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So this is where I've preached on this before. This is where I was like, man, darn it. God, you see the suffering. You're concerned. You want to respond. Why me? Can't you just handle this, God? Can't you just do this? But God says, no, I've seen it, I've heard it, I want to do something about it. Oh, so by the way, go. Anybody else ever been like wrecked by that? Where like you kind of wish God would just take care of his own business? Why does he keep bothering you to send you into these places? But um, I think uh, at the heart of the matter is this beautiful portrait of God who partners with us. He partners with us. He's like, look, things need fixing out there and, and I want you to help with that because I believe in you. And I don't think Moses is all there yet. I think Moses is probably where I have been when, when God's told me to do something and I'm like, yeah, no, really, take care of it, God. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. And, and I think like the thing, the caution here is, you know, it's an era in, in our country and in our culture where we get confronted with so much that's broken up in the world, so much that's busted and twisted that it becomes very, very easy to sit around and complain, does it not? It becomes very, very easy to focus on the negative and to say, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. But guess what? What this verse reminds me is that, oh, be careful. Be careful when you see all the things that are wrong in the world and you say, God, when are you going to fix this? Because what might just happen is that God says, oh, I'm going to fix it. And guess what? You're going to help. So be careful 
to the degree that like you want to say, I'm going to give you the laundry list, God. Here's my prayer. I'm going to give you this laundry list. Because God might tap you on the shoulder and go, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. And then what are you going to do? So he says, go, 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 go. And, uh, and I think a lot of us get this idea of going. Pastor Mark, uh, a few weeks ago when he talked about like the meaning of your dash, I think part, Pastor Mark just, he really does such a good job of, of unpacking what it means to go. So I'm not going to rehash what he does because he does it so much better than I do. I just want to kind of bring up a little bit of, of, a, of a different way of thinking about go. Because when we hear that, go, something's wrong, go. And we go, okay, some of us go, okay, I'm ready to go. But what's interesting about this for Moses is, is where does Moses have to go to? He has to go back first. And so when I was thinking about this this week and I was thinking about other people, because man, I tell you, if you read the Bible, God tells a lot of people to go. A lot of people, it's one of his favorite words. Abram, go. Paul, go. Jesus says it too, go to all the world. So as disciples, go should be a word that we're used to hearing. But there's different directions and different ways to go. So we'll just bring this slide up. Let me just talk about like, so there's a variety of directions that we can move. And sometimes these are, well, might be all multiple, these might be woven into whatever God might tell you to do. You might have to go forward into new territory, something you've never done before, a place you've never been before. But Moses, before he can do that, he also has to go back to the scene of the crime. So there's a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them, where like, look, before you can go to this new place, you actually need to go repair something, a relationship, a situation. It's not just going forward. Sometimes you got to go back. Sometimes going means going in. You know, we want to do things for God, but sometimes what God wants to do is say, go into yourself because you don't know yourself well enough and you don't know what I'm doing inside you well enough to do this other thing yet. You don't take any time for reflection. You don't take any time to connect with God. Go in. Going out might look like, look, um, you want to do this thing, but guess what? I don't, I don't do Lone Ranger spirituality, God says. And part of, part of going out might be connecting with other human beings and saying, I need to connect with people and learn to live in relationship and community with people. And I don't normally do that. Going up, look, there are people in this, in this community that might get called into positions of influence and power. Going up might be like, you know what? God, actually, um, you, I think you're calling me to a new job, a promotion. That could be the way that you go. And God can use that. Going can also mean going down. Going down. Christianity is not always about upward mobility. Sometimes you might be like, God, I feel like I'm being called to take a lower position. That's okay too. We can go in a variety of different directions at different times in our lives. Just don't always get hung up that it's always one direction. 
One Direction reference, man. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Easy question. God, who am I to do this? Who am I? I think we all ask that question. Whenever you get called into something new, there's a piece of like, man, I don't know if I'm called to do this. Who am I? I think we're going to see exactly who Moses is. Which, by the way, we kind of, we kind of mentioned this early. You know, like Moses' first reaction when God shows up is to what? Hide his face in fear. Moses gets over that fear pretty fast, doesn't he? Because he's like, oh, wait a, wait a minute here. God is, Moses isn't so afraid now to start arguing and bargaining with God. Um, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. We'll unpack that another time. I want to make two simple observations. Moses says, who am I? Who does God say that Moses is? Come on, guys, the answer's on the screen. God says, Moses, who you are is you're the person that I'm with. Which is not the answer probably that Moses wanted. God just says, you're the person I'm with. Now, wherever you're at in your life, wherever's going on in your life, if you are going, if you are doing something hard or you're doing something difficult, this I want to suggest to you is probably the essential element of your identity if you let it be that. You're the one that God is with. God does not abandon you. He will not forsake you, just like we sang earlier. Who are you? I'm the one that God is with. So whatever you're going to do, Moses, whatever this looks like, Moses, don't worry. First thing, I'm going to be with you, which may not be the answer we want, but it's the answer that is true. And then I want to kind of just remind us of who Moses is. Moses says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. Who am I that I should go? Well, who is Moses? He is Hebrew. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. So maybe, just maybe, Moses, you're the perfect person for this job. Maybe, just maybe, this isn't such a random thing after all. That Moses, even though he is apparently a shepherd, there is something in his character, his identity, his history, his gifts, his passions, his skills that God says, Moses, actually, you know who you are? You're the perfect person for the job because you know Pharaoh and you know me. Have you ever thought about that in terms of your own life? Because I think we get so preoccupied on God showing up and doing the supernatural random things that we never sit around and go, wait a minute. Maybe I'm uniquely qualified for something. 
Like everybody sitting here in this room has gifts, passions, strengths, joys, hobbies, curiosities. And I don't know what God is calling you to do with those or or maybe, you know, he doesn't always call you all the time to do something with a specific gift. Sometimes you keep a gift for a long time and then all of a sudden God says, wait, that thing, I need it. And guess what? You're uniquely qualified for it. Because nobody else is you. Nobody. For every single person in this room, nobody else is you. God has not wired anybody else up exactly like you. And so just like God shows up and says, Moses, uh, nobody else grew up in Pharaoh's household. And like, who are, who are you, Moses? You're the perfect person for the job. Okay, let's talk about that. Uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, he puts it this way. And I would just kind of say, like, we all, have, um, we all have things that give us joy in the world. Like, what do you love to do? What, what activity makes your heart just soar a little bit? What, what is the thing that, like, man, if you did it, like, three hours could go by, and please don't say, like, Xbox. That, I'm not sure that counts. But what is the thing that, like, elevates your, your, your blood level, and you're like, man, I, I will give this away, and, and it brings me such joy. It could be music. You know, it could be teaching. It could be bringing order to chaos in in. Literally, in, in administrative things. It could be helping people. It could be serving people. It could be working for justice in the world. What is that thing? There are things in the world that give you joy. Now, guess what? There are needs in the world. There are needs in the world. Like I said, we all look around. We see it all the time, right? You can probably list. Oh my gosh, there are so many needs in the world. Well, this writer's name is Parker Palmer. He would just say it this way, that the place of vocation is the place where your deepest joy meets the great needs of the world. So where there is an overlap between the things that bring you joy and the things that the world needs, man, that might be a place that God is calling you into. And we all have them. What is that thing in your life that you love to do? Now, Look around at the world. Where is there a need for that? I read this um, probably 20 years ago. And it made everything about my life make sense. At the time, where was my deepest joy and my deepest need? Well, I was playing music. And where was there a great need in the world? Well, a great need in the world was for people to experience God. And when I began to see that, that through my gifts and my joys and my strengths and my passions, people would meet God in that, I was like, oh, hey, Eric, I need my people to experience God. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Chicago. Who am I, God, that you would send me? Well, it's funny, Eric. You're a pretty good singer and a pretty good guitar player. Nobody else is you. And you're uniquely called and gifted for that. And hear me, 
That, that's true for every single one of you guys here. Every single person. I want to go back to verse 12 for just a moment because there's a reality about going that as we kind of wrap up um, this text today, there's another part of going that is challenging. God says, uh, you know, I'll be with you. It is, it is I that have sent you. I'm going to give you a sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So God gives Moses a sign. But when does the sign happen? Does it happen before the hard part or after the hard part? See, a lot of us, and I talk to you guys a lot, I think I want God to do something. I think God might be doing something. God, give me a sign. Check out what he gives Moses. I'm going to give you a sign after you do the hard thing. Uh, how do you say thank you for that? Man, this is so counterintuitive to me. Like, and the thing is, is like, what's in that gap is what I'm calling it. What's in that gap between when God calls and when the, and the promise? I'll tell you what's in that gap. A little bit of fear. Okay, because yeah, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, but he ain't Pharaoh. And he has to go to the strongest person in the strongest country in the region in that moment. And he has to say, hey, you know all those, you know your free labor? You got to let them go. That takes a little bit of courage, don't you think? Doesn't matter if Pharaoh grew up or if Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. You don't go to a person in that, that time and make a declaration like that. And what has Moses got at this point? He says, well, God's with me. And he says that when I do this, he does say, he does, he does say when and not if. When I do this, then the sign will happen. Well, deep breath, well, gut check. So it takes courage, it also takes faith. Look, God said he'll be with me. You know, and let me fast forward to that, maybe that first encounter with Pharaoh. You imagine what's going through Moses' head, you know, as that door opens. These are human beings, people. Like, we didn't think, like, oh, Moses was some kind of Superman. But do you not think that maybe there was just a little bit of like, okay, here we go. Oh, boy, my hands are sweating. And he has to walk in, but he has this. Courage and faith. And a lot of times when you have to go, man, I'll tell you, that's all you have. Courage and faith. God will not abandon me. He is with me. And he has told me to go to the most powerful person or whatever it is that he's calling you to go. Let me show you a picture. Um, this is St. Irenaeus um, lived around 200 AD, back when beards were rocking. And um, he was a bishop in the, the church and a theologian. And he's one of my favorite theologians. Irenaeus, uh, 
has a lot of really, really beautiful theology. He, he fought against, or not literally fought, but he did intellectual battle and debate with a lot of people who were pulling Christianity in different directions. And one of the things that Irenaeus uh, maintains is that a one way to think about humanity is that we are created, human beings, every one of us, we're created in God's image, but we're immature. And the picture of maturity for Irenaeus was like Jesus Christ. And that God's deepest hunger for all of us was that we would grow to maturity and look like Jesus. But I don't know, I've got kids. Maturity takes time. For some of them, longer than others. And for some of us, maturity takes longer than others. Can I get an amen? amen. But Irenaeus says, that's okay. The point is, God's biggest agenda in the world is to make mature people. And he calls it, or actually a modern philosopher, Christian philosopher calls it soul making. That we're born in the womb and as we mature, that we are, uh, our souls are immature. And we have to go through life and learning to become mature people. And that's what God wants more for us than anything else. That theology and that system of belief, it helped me explain, it helped explain to me like when I started thinking about the harder things of life that I encountered. God, why did I have to go through this? Well, guess, guess how you get mature? You get mature through experience. And a lot of times experience comes more through hard times than it does through good times. Amen. But God says, look, the biggest agenda for you is that your soul grows up in maturity. And so when you're thinking about Moses' sort of situation where God's like, hey, go, do this thing. And Moses is like, man, that's going to take a lot of courage and it's going to take a lot of faith. And God's like, yes, it will. Good. And how do you think that will affect Moses' growth pattern? Going can really make you like evolve and grow. And here's like where it really starts getting like really, really cool to me because uh, yes, God wants to set his people free. But if God's biggest agenda is for us all to grow, then what it means is that I am free if my going results in a catastrophic failure. That's okay. Because God wants me to grow. And a lot of times I grow when I fail more than I when I succeed. Does that make sense to anybody? Anybody ever like, like man, you blew something really bad and you're like, man, well, I learned about five lessons. I'll never do that again. Failure teaches us much more than success does. At least it has in my life. So I want to give you a couple of just po uh, points as we, as we think about this. It's not just about results. If, if God's biggest agenda is for us to grow, is for our souls to be made, it's not just did it succeed, but it's also did you grow? Did your soul expand? Do you look a little bit more like Jesus? If, it, if you did and you didn't hit it out of the park, that's okay. 
Because remember, what does God promise Moses first? Uh, God, who am I? Moses, you know who you are first? I am with you. And if you stumble and fall over this, that's not a contingency. God's like, I'm there. I'm with you. But it also means if our biggest job is to grow and to be like Jesus, the ends do not justify the means. If you're in a position of influence and you're working on a project and your success entails you manipulating and lying and being rude and mean and subjugating other people to unjust things, mm-mm, mm-mm. I would suggest to you your soul is not being made into the image of Christ. Right? Like we can't just go, hey, like I go to church on Sunday, so I'm all good. God's like, no, if I've sent you somewhere, please make sure that the way that you are building this thing and living it out and working represents the deepest values of my son, Jesus. Because it's not about just uh, going, right? It's about growing. I always love it when I, when I get one of those preachery, rhymey things. It's not just will you go, it is will you grow. Because it, going is going to be hard. And it might take an awful lot of courage and an awful lot of faith. And don't get me wrong, like, I want, when I try to give my life to something, I want it to succeed. I want to be successful. I want to say, yes, I did the thing that I was called to do. But you know what? If it doesn't, that's okay too. Because my God is still with me. And it wasn't just about getting the mission done. It was about how did I grow and expand? So, Here's a statement for the week. Week two, what does this statement say about us? What does it say about God? What does it say about our relationship to God? It says that God is a sending and partnering God. He sends us. He goes with us. He doesn't do all the work for us, but he goes with us. And as we go, we remember. Moses says, who am I? You're the person I'm with, Moses. He goes with us. And that means, boy, if it takes courage, he's there. If it takes faith, he's there. But the goal is not just to go and get it done. It is to grow to be more like Jesus. So, the band's going to play. And as they play, I want to ask you, like, are you being sent somewhere? Like, do you just know? And you're like, God's like, I'm sending you. And you're like, no, you're not. I'm sending, no, you're not. Is there a place in your life that you've been resisting going? And what's there? Is it because you're afraid? It's fine. Is it because you have fear? That's fine. But God is with you. He's with you. And whether you succeed or fail or stumble or fall, that's not going to change that. And your goal in it is to grow, to be more like Jesus. Amen.